Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, John chapter 3, uh, as we continue in our series in the, the Gospel of John, and uh, in case you're wondering, or in case you might, uh, go back and check again, uh, that reference for the Old Testament reading is Numbers 11, not Micah 3. Um, I didn't catch that in the in the proof. Um John chapter 3, we will uh, begin in verse 22 and uh, go through the end of the chapter. Uh, I, uh, I will readily admit that it is borderline. Uh, if you are able, uh, would you please stand as we give our attention uh, to the reading of God's Word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be at work. Use this, your word, to uh, bring uh, unrepentant or unbelieving sinners into uh, the household of faith. Use your word to strengthen and encourage your saints. Use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, for we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Maybe you are old enough to remember the old Bob Euchre commercial. It's probably a beer commercial. Bob Uecker, Mr. Baseball. In the commercial, he's, he's in the stands and he's watching a baseball game and security guard comes and gets him and says, hey, you're in the wrong seat, buddy. And Bob Uecker stands up and says, 
I must be in the front row. He's so convinced that he's recognized as Mr. Baseball that he's supposed to get all kinds of special treatment. Oh, well, they've got a seat reserved just for me down there in the front row because they know who I am. And of course, in the last scene, he's in the nosebleed somewhere screaming and yelling from who knows how high up in the, the stands. The reality is it's, it's natural for us to uh, want credit. It's natural for us to want honor. I mean, how often are we just like that? Well, they know who I am, and so I get the special treatment. Or they, they know what I do, or how much I give, or, or what my gifts are, and how good I am, and great I am, and special I am. And so I'm supposed to get all this special treatment. We expect that same kind of credit and, and honor. And then we're jealous when other people get credit and honor that they might or might not deserve. We get angry. We get frustrated. We get jealous. The reality is it's natural for us to, to want to be seen as important. But see, that's the problem. It's natural. And what this passage steers us towards, what this passage wants uh, for us, isn't natural at all, but supernatural. And it's the work of God's grace in our lives. First, I want you to see in this passage the threat of temptation. Uh, Jesus is out in um, the countryside. He's, he's been in Jerusalem. He's, he leaves Jerusalem. He wanders out into the countryside. Not wanders aimlessly, but he's out in the countryside of, of Judea, uh, outside of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and there he's baptizing people. Now, let me just go ahead and preempt this because this will come up next week. If you look down to verse 2 of chapter 4, we're told specifically that Jesus personally wasn't baptizing. His disciples were. Uh, now, lest you decide, oh, we'll see, the Bible's full of errors. 3.22 and 4.2 aren't in conflict at all. Because we you do this all the time, don't we? We say the president accomplished something, even if technically it was the Secretary of State that did the work. So if Jesus' disciples are baptizing in his presence, under his authority, uh, under his watch and care, as it were, then uh, 3.22 and 4.2 aren't in conflict. Just want to make sure that we don't walk out of here going, see, mistakes in the Bible. Um, because that's not the case at all. But in the area near Jesus is John the Baptist with his disciples, and he also is baptizing people. And then that's where the discussion happened. There's a, a, a Jewish person, a, a Judean, a local guy, Who's watching as apparently, we don't have the, the content, we don't have the details of the verse 25 discussion, but you can imagine. You can piece it together as you read verses 26 and 27. Some local guy watching Jesus baptize, watching John baptize, and watching Jesus' disciples and John's disciples, and, and, and he's, he's going to grab some of John's disciples and say something to the effect of, are you good with this? 
It's a conversation about purification. I, I don't know. What's the right way? What's the right mode? What's the right manner? Or, more likely, who's the right person to be doing this? Because... The, the, the local Jewish guy seems to be kind of pointing out, you know, the guy you follow seems to have competition. He, he raises doubt and, and fear and, and causes jealousy, uh, raises jealousy sort of within John's disciples. There's some debate over the the manner the the proper person or manner of purification you can see the the opportunity for conflict you can see the the threat of temptation you can see as John's disciples are struggling with this doubt and fear because remember Jesus is the new kid on the block. Jesus is the Johnny come lately. He's the the unknown upstart in all of this. You and I read this and go, well, Jesus, yeah, of course. You, you put yourself in their shoes for a second. Jesus has only been involved in public ministry for just a short while. Okay, yeah, he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana, but Cana? I mean, that's like doing a miracle in Tanner, right? That's not like downtown Birmingham, downtown Montgomery, where all kinds of people can see you, right? It's it's little backwoods town out there somewhere. And the reality is, as you read through that miracle, you're, it's just a couple of servants that saw it. It wasn't even really all that public. And yes, at the end of chapter 2, there are more signs. There are public signs in Nicodemus seems to have seen some of those. But Jesus is still the new guy. In fact, that's why I think John points out, John the Gospel writer in verse 24, seems to point out that John the Baptist wasn't in prison yet. Because by that time, Jesus is now a public ministry. Jesus' ministry is, is public. This is before John the Baptist gets arrested for calling out Herod the Tetrarch's illicit, illegal marriage and ultimately being beheaded for doing just that. It's John that everyone knows. It's John's discipleship ministry that everyone knows. Go back in Luke and and early in Luke 3, you get this this account of John out baptizing and, and crowds coming to him. He's the known guy. Jesus is the Johnny come lately. And so now you hear the the conflict. You can hear the, the threat of temptation. And in fact, notice what they say in verse 26. When the disciples come to, to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you were witness, look, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. It's explicitly not true that all are coming to him. 
Because we just were told that people were coming to John also in verse 23. But you know how it is. When there's a threat. When there's competition. When there's someone out there getting glory that you kind of want for yourself. When there's someone out there getting credit and praise and honor that you kind of want for yourself. It sure feels like they're all going to them. It sure feels like everybody's going to that guy. And nobody knows who I am. feels like we're losing followers. But the reality is we all know how easy it is to get jealous like that. We all know exactly how easy it is to get jealous at the success of others. Children learn to say mine almost as soon as they can say mama. Because they want that competition. They feel robbed. People have gifts that we wish we had or we get jealous that they get recognition for their gifts and we might even have the same ones and nobody seems to notice. Or people get angry because they have cool gifts and mine are stupid. Mine are lame. Mine are boring. See, the reality is you kind of think preachers are immune to this. I'm not turning down invitations to speak at Ligonier conferences. I'm not saying no. I'm not getting them. Right? We get this. Right? This is, this is so part and parcel to our world. How easy it is, it is for us to get jealous and even angry at the success of others. The threat of temptation. But then that's followed by the perspective of piety. Now, let me preempt your immediate bristle at the word piety. Number one, it's a phenomenal word. We should bring it back. It's an old Reformation Puritan word. It is not the look down your nose at all those little people around you. That kind of idea, that kind of added, that's what we think of when we hear the word. That's not what the word means at all. John Calvin kind of gave it this description. Piety is that reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. In other words, knowing who and what God is leads to right attitudes towards him and his commandments. That's what piety is. And it's in that vein that John responds to his disciples. He gives them three things to consider in verses 27 to 30. They come to him in a panic. John, that new guy is getting all the followers. Notice his response first. Verse 27. The reality is, guys, we don't have anything that isn't a gift from God. Whatever we have, whatever it might be, whether it's gifts, whether it's possessions, whether it's knowledge or understanding or or whatever, everything we have is a gift from God anyway. John the Baptist is reading James 1 before James is even a believer. 
much less before he's written James 1. He's reading every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He's echoing that truth right here in his own response to his disciples. Whatever you have, whether small or great, God has given it to you. Trace that for a second. Trace the feeling of the disciples through that grid for just a second. That means when we get jealous, when we get angry, when we get frustrated at the gifts and, and abilities, whatever God has given to others around us, when we want their downfall or when we want our success to to be greater than theirs or whatever the case may be. We're essentially saying, God, you messed up. And if I were God, I would fix this now. God, you have failed. You clearly are either unwilling, unable or unloving. Because you have given me this and that's robbing me of honor and glory that I want. And so if I were God, this would not be the case. Perhaps I should replace you now. That's what that jealousy says. That's exactly what that, that anger says. And John points us to the fact that, look, gifts that God gives to us are exactly that. Gifts from God to us. And gifts that God gives to others are exactly that. Gifts from God to others. We can claim no honor, no glory, no credit for ourselves. We must give it all to Him. We would do well to learn to see that in our brothers and sisters around us. But there's a, a second truth to which John points in verse 28 and in verse 28, he reminds them not just of what they have already heard him say, but what they themselves just said in verse 26. His reminder is, guys, you know good and well that I never claimed to be him. I never claimed to be the Messiah. My mission all along has been to be the forerunner. I'm the herald. I'm the one who comes and announces that the Messiah is here. That has always been my mission. And y'all know that. And at some level in verse 26, they actually brought that up in their own memory, even within their jealousy. John, the guy who was with you across the Jordan, that you were pointing us to. Is baptizing people. And you kind of want to be John and go, did you listen to your question? Did you listen to your objection? You actually answered your own jealousy and anger and frustration in your own response. And so John, in his perspective of piety, responds with, guys, I am not him and I have never claimed to be him. He is him. I'm the forerunner. I'm the, the herald. And for that matter, you can sort of put on your, 
your British history, you know, knowledge, love, interest for just a second. And imagine a king who is, has invited a bunch of um, important people, nobles, lords, perhaps rulers from other countries to an event in the great hall. And he's not in the room. They're all in the room. They're milling about. But by the door is a dude whose job is to announce, here's the king. He's coming into the room now. And the reality is everyone's aware of his voice. Everyone's aware of where he is. Everyone's aware of the herald. And as soon as he says, here's the king, blows the trumpet, makes his announcement, where does he go? Nobody knows. Because he's never been the point. That's never been his job. Nobody has a clue where he goes because we quit watching when the king walks in the room. That's John's picture. There's a a third line um, of thought in his uh, perspective of piety in verse 29. And he points his disciples to a wedding, a marriage. And the role of the best man in first century Judaism was basically to make sure that the wedding came off without a hitch. That the party was actually good and fun. That the groom actually got there. And that no one was allowed in the bride's chamber except the groom. That's his mission. That's his job. That's his function within sort of first century Judaism um, uh, marriage ceremony. A decent best man doesn't try to take the bride for himself. A decent best man rejoices at the joy, the delight The blessing for the bride and the groom. And John says, I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man. That's my job. That's my role and function. When the groom is here, the friend of the groom, the the best man rejoices because the groom is here. The groom has arrived. The time for the wedding is now. You hear what he's saying, right? Jesus is the groom. I'm just the best man. Which means my job is to make sure this happens, to sort of do all the front work, and to make sure this event happens, and then to get out of the way. But if if Jesus is the groom, who's the bride? Who's he come to marry? Oh, it's the church. Jesus comes to, to win his bride. That is what he's doing in his earthly ministry. And so John the Baptist fins off the, the temptation to sin with proper piety, with a, a right view of, of who God is, of who Jesus is, of God's power and authority and wisdom over Uh, creation and over his people and a right view of Jesus and his earthly ministry. Is that not how you and I might fend off temptation? A right view of who God is, who Christ is and what he's done and his, the, the purpose, the, the function of his 
earthly ministry, if we want to, to mortify our earthly, fleshly, sort of old self, old man desires, then we don't really need to run down here to the bookstore and pick up the latest, greatest, five easy steps to a better you. What we need is a better perspective of God's sovereignty, of God's love, and the person and work of Jesus. And the more we keep those things in our minds, the more satisfied we can learn to be with our state and with the gifts that he's given us. But see, here's the thing. For you and me, in normal everyday life, this is a conflict between equals. That's not the case in this passage, right? This isn't, this isn't a, a, an issue of jealousy between equals, between peers, between same people, right? You and I, we're all just, we're just merely humans, right? We're, we're the same. But that's not the case in this, this temptation, the thread of temptation between John and his disciples and, and Jesus. Because Jesus is greater than John. Jesus isn't like John. Jesus is inherently greater than John the Baptist. And here's the thing. John the evangelist, John the gospel writer, and John the Baptist have been telling us that since verse 1, chapter 1. Everything so far has been reminding us that Jesus isn't like us. He's exactly like us. He's fully man, but he isn't like us because where did he come from? Right? He was there in the beginning. In the beginning, the word was with God. Oh, and the word was God. He was there in the beginning. He makes the Father known to us. He created and brought everything into existence. So while Jesus is fully man, he's not merely man. And so it's with that in mind that we get John's statement in verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. That should be our motto. That, that should be our motto. I mean, just think of the times. I mean, we do this even at church, right? We, well, but I mean, I like this. Or if we're going to choose it, well, I want this, or I like this, or my preference is this, or I've got to have this, or if I can't do this, or be that, or have this, then I'm not, I'm going to go somewhere else to find what I can have the way I want it. You don't, you don't want to go to a church that makes it about you. You want to go to a church that makes it about Jesus. You want to go to a church that says, we will decrease. He must increase. We are behind him. He is greater we than we are. And when we gather as a congregation on the Lord's day, it needs to be about Jesus and not about ourselves. But did you notice that that one word that shows up in both of those phrases in verse 30? Not he ought to increase. I ought to decrease. Not, it would be better if he increased and it would be better if I... No, no. He must. There is no other option. There is no other choice. There is no other... Well, I mean, if we want to, then we'll make much of Jesus. But, you know, he must increase or he, he can increase maybe a little bit. And, and then, you know, just so that he's a little bit more... 
The word is must. And the reality is that it has to be that way. Because Jesus will not yield his throne to any other ruler. Jesus will not give his glory away. He will not give his authority away. The threat of temptation, the perspective of piety. Third, the superiority of the Savior. Why must he increase? Why must we decrease? Well, you get the answer in verses 31 to 36. And again, there's multiple reasons, three reasons that John gives for why this must be the case. And the reason is, the first reason at least, verse 31, is because of who Jesus is. He's not earthly. He's not merely human. He's not merely man. He's actually from above. And because he's from above, he is above all. Because he comes from above, because he is from heaven, the end of verse 30, he is by definition above all. It's just a reminder of the first 18 verses of the, the, the gospel. It's just a reminder all over again of, of John 1 and, and following. The reminder that, that Jesus didn't come from Mary and Joseph. He comes from eternity past. He comes from heaven to dwell among us. To take on flesh. And so he is, by definition, the cause of who he is, greater. And here's the thing. John's known this forever. Go back and read. I think it's in Luke. I meant to make this note and I, I forgot. And then I get into this situation and I talk myself into all sorts of possibilities. I think it's Luke. But when Mary is pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth, her cousin, is pregnant with John, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And when Mary knocks on the door and Elizabeth opens the door and lets her in, John, in utero, six months pregnant, does flips. He reacts. Why? Because he knows the baby that Mary is carrying is no mere man. It's not just his cousin, according to the flesh. It's God in the flesh. He's from above. There's a second reason, verses 32 to 35. Notice the, the words used. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Now, what has he seen and heard? Well, if he comes from above, he bears witness to things you and I can't see. He bears witness to the reality behind the curtain, beyond the veil. Right? He reveals eternity past. The, the triune council. He reveals, he makes that known to us. But notice the language. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony, that word used again. Um, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Do you have Psalm 119 rolling around in your head? It's almost like John's recounting for us 
You know that chapter in the Psalms, it's all about God's word. And there's, and there's, there's um, all these different words used to describe the truth of the Bible, of God's word. It uses words like witness and testimony and word. In other words, it's not just because of who Jesus is, but because of who he is, he can speak only what is true. He can speak only what is what is what is true. He can only make known. He can't lie. He can't bear false witness. He can't lead you astray. He can't guide you in the wrong direction. He can only speak that which God gives him to speak. Jesus speaks with the full authority of God the Father. And there's a third reason that Jesus must increase, verse 35. And it's because of the Father's love for the Son. He has given the Son everything. He's given the Son all things. He has power and authority over all of creation. He exercises judgment and power over man. He has the authority to deliver us from sin, to accuse men of guilt. It all belongs to Jesus. And that's why right before His ascension, He can look at the disciples and as He gives them the Great Commission, He can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Because The Father loves the Son. He's given Him all things. Jesus is the King. And He's the King of you and of me, whether we admit it or not. You can put all the not my president stickers you want on your car. He's still your president. You can put all the not my king you want on your car. Jesus is still your king. Jesus still rules and reigns over all things. The threat of temptation, the perspective of piety, the superiority of the Savior. And finally, here's the the goal of the gospel. Because isn't where we stand right now at the end of verse 35, isn't that exactly where John, the gospel writer, wants us to be? Why does Jesus, why why does John write this gospel? So that we can behold and believe. So that we can see Jesus and who he is and the the authority and power. See him in his his person and his work and have a right perspective and understanding of, of who Jesus is. And to then respond in faith. Which is exactly where verse 36 takes us. Those who believe in the Son have eternal life. If you are trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation, you have eternal life in Him. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. If we reject the Gospel, if we reject the Son, if we disobey the Gospel by rejecting Jesus, by beholding Him and then saying... Nah, I think I'm going to try something else. Then the wrath of God remains on you. That's that's the either or. 
There are only two people in the world, only two kinds of people in the world, right? The only grid that we in the church need for evaluating people around us is, are they in or are they out? If they're in the church, they're part of my family. I need to love them that way. If they're not in the church, I need to love them enough to try to get them in. That's what this verse does. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those trusting in Christ and those who aren't. And we come and we confess our jealousy. We confess our anger. We confess our frustration at the success of others or that we're being passed over for honor that we're convinced we need and we are forgiven and we embrace Christ who must increase, who loves us enough to come and to win the heart of his bride. May God grant us the grace to see Jesus clearly. To cause Him to increase in our hearts and our minds and among those around us and to make less of ourselves. And may He grant that same grace to Grace Covenant that we would be a place that makes much of Jesus and less of us. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father in Heaven, we thank You for uh, Your goodness and Your mercy and Your grace to us. Would you give us the perspective that sees our gifts as gifts from you? Would you give us the perspective that sees that what we have is is from you and you are accomplishing your purposes according to your power and your wisdom? Use us to that end. Father, we pray that we would be people who delight in the honor of our brothers and sisters, that we would give honor to whom honor is due, But more importantly, we would be people who make much of Jesus. We pray that Jesus would increase and we would decrease. Here at Grace Covenant in the life of this congregation, but also in our lives individually, day in and day out. To the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.